Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with Ojibwe writer David Troyer. There is a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Um, well, I'm really, I've just so enjoyed uh, getting steeped in your work and your writing these mm. last few days. And, um, and I don't, and I, you know, I define, we define and evoke the whole notion of religion and spirituality broadly with the program mm-hmm. and don't always try to take it on directly, but, but how, how this impulse and these um, traditions r- run through life. And I think that sure. is all the way through your work. So, I, you know, I, I, we will talk a, a bit about spirituality per se, but I, I think whenever you're talking about someone's sense of self and mm. human identity, I mean, there's, you know, you are talking about the human spirit as well. Um, oh, I agree. So let's just, let's, I, I know it's going to be fun and let's just see how it works. Cool. Okay. All right. We'll see where we go. Yeah. Um, Mitch, are you ready? You need to hear him. Okay. Uh, what did you have for lunch? Uh, I didn't have any lunch yet because when I would have been eating lunch, I went out to try and find some mushrooms. <laughs> and uh, It's morel season right now. And I usually do that back home and out, I've never looked out here. So it's kind of a struggle. Did, you didn't find any? Well, you know, I found one in the city of Rochester, so <laughs> in the city limits. Well, that's not so bad. Yeah. But um, I'm used to going out this time of year with my nieces and nephews and my brothers and hmm. and uh, back in northern Minnesota. And, and uh, when were you becoming back to Minnesota? Are you staying there for a while? Uh, no, no, no. Just a few weeks. Just okay. a few weeks. Um, end of the month, I'll be, I'll be driving back. Well, the sun is shining, so your timing is good. Oh, it's a great time of year. <laughs> yeah. But it hasn't been shining until now. So That's what I've heard. Yeah, yeah it's, it's been, been very strange. Very strange. So, Mitch, are you, mm. are you ready? Okay. Um, you know, I, I spent many years in Germany, and, and so I'm, I'm intrigued um, by your German father, your Austrian father. Yeah. Um, right. And I, I think people don't usually zero in on that. And, but I, I did actually just it, – it's such a fascinating combination – Mm. Of your mother and your father um, being an Austrian Jew, meeting her—is this right? While well, he was teaching on the Leech Lake Reservation, yeah. and um, I, I would like to hear a little bit of the story of how he got there, and and how sure. and how his the you know the, his identity and his culture and background brought into the mix of you, you know how mm. how that affected your identity. Sure. Well, well, um, my father. It's a really long, beautiful and, and terrifying um, both, mm-hmm. but long story about how he um, escaped Austria, you know, by way of Belgium, England, Ireland, and then on his own came to the States where he was reunited with his, with his um, parents mm. who themselves escaped separately. And um, so that, that's a very long, very long story. But once in the States, they wound up in Ohio. Uh, he was married at a young age and then uh, enlisted in the army at the very tail end of World War II, was sent, sent to the Pacific as a um, translator, of all things. Hmm. <clears throat> they, um, 
the army taught him Japanese in a crash course and sent him to the Philippines as opposed to sending him to the Battle of the Bulge, which I think was probably fortunate. Yes. And uh, he, as he as he says, you know, he really wanted more than anything else to kill Germans, hmm. and they thought that might his zeal might be a little bit of a liability, hmm. and so they sent him to the Philippines, and where he interrogated Japanese prisoners of war for for I think he was there for a year and a half, came back, and ended up working in steel mills hmm. around the Chicago area, I think, and as someone who could read and write, he was an unusual. Uh, worker, oh, he was. I think he was shoveling coal or something like that. He was very unusual to have somebody who could both read and write, and who came from a labor background because mm-hmm. his father had been a very, very, um, very, very active socialist in Austria. So he quickly made his way into the union and worked in various capacities in with and in the AFL CIO mm-hmm. and. After the Kohler strike in Wisconsin in the 50s, he early 50s, after the strike ended, they wanted to send him to Detroit. But the unions were getting quite violent. Um, he didn't want to move to Detroit. And he knew of a teacher's college in northern Minnesota where he could go and get his teaching certificate. So that's what he did. <laughs> moved his family up to Bemidji, bought an abandoned farm just off the reservation, got his teaching degree, and ended up teaching on the reservation. Uh, for I think four or five years, where he met my mother. And um, was he teaching in English? Yeah, he was teaching English literature. He was teaching Shakespeare and Steinbeck. <laughs> and is and, that what what people learned at, even in the reservation schools? I don't know what the curriculum was, but but he was teaching them Hamlet and Macbeth huh. and Romeo and Juliet. And sure, huh. I mean this was a reservation school, but it was mixed. It was mixed mm-hmm. native and white, mm-hmm. and. Um, they had mandates just like any other school. So I imagine those things were on the curriculum. But knowing my father, I'm sure he included things that weren't on the curriculum, like the Communist Manifesto. This was during the McCarthy era, and he thought that if people were going to hate communists, they should know something about communism. Hmm. And so he assigned the Communist Manifesto, which I think was not a big hit with the administration. (laughs) So, I I mean, I'm just curious about how this having this Austrian Jewish father then played into your um, sense of yourself, even growing up on the reservation. How how did that make you different? um, Different than than my cousins? Well, I don't know. Yeah, maybe than than your cousins. How did it imprint you? I, you know, I don't know, and it's something I, I, I think about and mm. I try to write about, but it's it's really hard to say. Mm. Um, I do know that that you know my father and my father's family were not particularly religious uh, while in Vienna and then growing up for the remainder of his teenage years in the States. And then for many decades after, religion was not something that my father or his parents knew anything about or were at all interested in. For my grand, for my grandfather, my father's father, his religion was the people, mm-hmm. and he believed in in workers. He believed in in people, and he believed in social justice. Those were his beliefs. My grandmother, I think, uh, believed in music. Mm. She was a musicologist and a music teacher, and my father believed in both of those things. So, and, no, sorry, go on, keep going. Oh yeah, and so when he moved to the reservation and started teaching on the reservation. And he um, formed lasting and long friendships with Native people, with Ojibwe people, and then ended up marrying my mother. Um, he got to 
he got exposed to native ceremonial practices and native religions and the native community. And as he has described it to me, the reservation, this place that is often described as as desolate or grim mm -hmm. or violent, was in fact the first place my father ever felt safe mm -hmm. and where he felt like he belonged. Even though there was no confusion as to who he was and and who the people there were. And so all of those things came together in, in me, I think, and my siblings in different ways. And, and um, I like to think had the effect of, of creating good people. Mm -hmm. I really admire my siblings. I, I, I look up to them, even my younger brother and sister. And um, it, it sounds I, like a belief. It, it maybe also even solidified mm. your sense of belonging paradoxically because he belonged by choice. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it did. I mean, I, I remember feeling when I left for college, feeling so lonesome and so so homesick for, for a, a home or or aspects of a home that I couldn't even articulate, whether it was landscape or, or extended family or um, a lifestyle. I was I, I missed it terribly, and I never thought I would. Hmm. When I left for college, I thought I was gone for good, hmm. and uh, I, I always have come back. I, I ask everyone this question if I'm talking to a quantum physicist or a theologian <laughs> or whatever. I always ask people some, to tell me about the spiritual background of your childhood. Mm. Well, it was unusual, I guess. Um, not even all Native families were, were, at least in my community of Leech Lake, what you'd call traditional. Um, that is, you know, traditional versus, I guess, not traditional usually falls out along lines of whether you believe in Ojibwe spiritual and ceremonial practices and then you practice them or if you believe in Christianity. Hmm. Um, that's typically how it's talked about or discussed. And my childhood was spent going to Ojibwe ceremonies and with my mother and my father who would, who would also go going to, to Ojibwe ceremonies around Minnesota and Wisconsin and, and uh, Manitoba and Ontario and participating in, in those things. And um, my parents were both, are both still very spiritual people, and, and they involved us in that quite a bit when we were growing up. And it was a part of, of what we did. Now, of course, being a teenager, I would have rather <laughs> gone to see you 2 in concert than yeah. have gone to a ceremony in Manitoba. But uh, I did both. So was it completely wrapped up in, uh, with, with ceremonies and rituals? Was that a, the most defining feature of that spirituality? Um, that, I suppose, yes. Um, Ojibwe ceremonies are... are fun, <laughs> unlike a lot of religious traditions. Right. They can be a lot of fun, and there's there's a place in them for, uh, I guess, what you could call either dark or off-color humor. <laughs> and um, so even as a kid, I mean, you'd hear these old people cracking some of the nastiest, nastiest jokes you could, you could, <laughs> I, that I could never have dreamed up on my own. And um, so I enjoyed that. But there was also an aspect of, of ceremony which is linked to practice, where it's not like a there are aspects of our ceremonies which are, I guess I would call, high religion. Hmm. But a lot of it is, has to do with, with practice of a certain kind of lifestyle. Things like going mushroom hunting or, or harvesting wild rice or tapping maple trees or, or hunting, trapping, 
things like that. And we did all those things uh, growing up. My parents were really, really committed to exposing us to an Indian life that wasn't just an idea, but was a was a something you did. It wasn't just something you believed in. And there, um, you know, as we begin, let's just <laughs> language around this whole subject um, is is so complicated. Um, I, is. I will confess, actually, I had not realized until I dug into this, and I didn't grow up in this part of the country. But I don't know if that's mm. an excuse. I grew up in Oklahoma. <laughs> um, we, <I> <laughs> it may not be an excuse then. <laughs> no, well, I know, but we. I grew up in a place called Shawnee in Pottawatomie County, and Tecumseh was next door. But Ojibwe, I don't wow. remember hearing about. Um, but anyway, that Ojibwe and Chippewa. Are in fact the same. That it is the, they are the same. I had no idea of that. Um, I also read somewhere that there are other terms Ojibwe use to speak about each other, which have spiritual meaning. Hmm. Is, do you know what I'm talking about? Does, I I'm not sure I do. I mean, can you give me a little more info? I can't. I, it would be how Ojibwe refer to them, themselves or each other. Never mind. Okay. Do you know what I'm? Well, I think so. I mean, there, there's a word we have for. Any Indian person, which is Anishinaabe, refers to, it could be an Indian from any tribe. Okay. Ojibwe is how we refer to ourselves. N- neither one has an overt uh, spiritual component. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other sort of phrases of kinship or, or relation that you would use with people that you, that you feel close to or that you, that you know or that you, you might be involved in, in ceremonial doings with. Um, but yeah, that I'm not quite sure what you mean. Okay, I don't. I don't know where I didn't. I didn't specify. I'm not sure where I read that. So let's. Doesn't mm. matter. But and then I mean then of course the more fraught um, f- phrase is is whether to use the language is in terms of how the larger culture speaks about native people. I mean, you do you refer to mm. yourself as Indian or Native American and. And why does it matter um, to you? Well, it matters. It matters greatly for a lot of people. Um, a lot of people have given this a lot of thought and care deeply, and and, dis- and make very fine distinctions between things, phrases such as American Indian, Native American right. Indian, and um, from f- for me, I I don't. This seems kind of funny, being a writer and being a language guy. Those phrases aren't as important to me as Ojibwe, hmm. Anishinaabe, and okay. so on. The phrases that we have for ourselves in our own language. Um, one of my cousins came up with a, a great phrase for me. He said, you know, as, since you're Indian, you'd be Anishinaabe. But since you're Jewish and Indian, I think we should call you Jewishinaabe. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and uh, yeah, it's my cousin. <laughs> so. Um. And you write a lot about how much association and imagery the word Indian contains in an American imagination, and not just in an American imagination, the Mm. global imagination, and that this gets in the way of really understanding. It does. It does. (laughs) We kind of live with, you know, more really elaborate... We live wearing really elaborate disguises, not really of our own devising. You mean we Indians, you you, yeah. you, you and your people? Mm-hmm. Sure. That we live, you know, beyond and behind, you know, these, these ideas about what a quote-unquote real Indian is or 
a quote-unquote traditional Indian or, or what reservation life is like. And the ideas that people have about these things are, are typically poorly informed ideas and ideas drawn from, from the Indian of the imagination. Hmm. The Indian, you know, the James Fenmore Cooper's Indians or, or um, the Indians one finds in Dances with Wolves and, and so on. So, so our lives, our, our lives, their real dimensions, which I think are, are interesting and beautiful, are, are, are often, often escape notice. The, the context in which I think people also, in which this imagination forms, is also about this incredible weight of tragedy in history. Yeah. In which um, non-Indian, non-Native people feel culpable without really knowing what to do about that. Right, right. And, and the <laughs> best example of that is when my, my older brother uh, went away to school. He, he went to Princeton. I followed him a year later. And uh, he felt you know, very much uh, very different, very alien out there, both geographically and culturally and so on. And you, you play the, the ethnicity game when you're... When you first arrive at school, and everyone's trying to figure out who, you know, what, what you are, and you turn to figure out what they are, and what are you, and where are you from? And hmm. So someone asked Anton, "Well, what are you?" And he said, "Oh, I'm I'm Native American. I'm I'm Ojibwe from Northern Minnesota." And this person said, "Oh no, 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 you're not." <laughs> and he said, well, "What do you mean I'm not? How can I not be?" And they said, "Well, you're here." Hmm. And he said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, hmm. we killed all of you. Really? At Princeton? Yeah. Oh, sure. Sure. The Ivy <sighs> League does, is, 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 has no shortage of, um, <sighs> how do you want to put it delicately, you know, um, under-informed people. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, you, you pose this question in your book, um, Native American Fiction, a User's Manual. You say, how in life and literature can Indians remain so knowable and so strange at the same time? How can we be so distant and so immediately accessible, especially to and in the imagination, whereas in life we are to most impenetrable? Um, how do you answer that question? <laughs> uh, well, in some ways, you know, I think a lot of Native people. I just want to speak, for, I guess, for myself yeah, or for my no. family, but um, and not really speak for for anybody else. Um, there's a certain safety in the woods, <laughs> I guess, which is that not a not a lot of Native people have um, feel like it's their life mission to go correcting every every uh, misunderstanding there is about us. And in fact, those misunderstandings. Um, offer protective camouflage sometimes. And so there's that. There's also that that um the that people I, I noticed this when I lived in Minis- when I lived in, in Minneapolis where I was living in S- South Minneapolis. I was living on Franklin, that's the traditionally the Indian neighborhood hmm. of the the urban native population of, of Minneapolis. And I I could see it happening when you'd see I'd see other other skins on the street and I would look at non-natives and I would see them actively trying not to see the Indians because the idea of an urban Indian or, or an Indian who went to work at the Ford plant in St. Paul or who you know might be drywalling your house just didn't seem right, hmm. just like my brother being at Princeton. And so there's this active, this active process of, 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 of making 
the Indians that don't conform to our comfortable ideas about them disappear. You see this in fiction too, where, where the books that step outside of, of the received ways of making Indian characters or making Indian identities or realities don't get the same kind of play as books that do. Hmm. And um, I ran into that with my first novel and, and my second. And the, the, my third, I guess, is something else. That but. they didn't conform to what people expected. Yeah, sure. Sure. There were, as I, the shorthand is there weren't many feathers or beads. <laughs> okay. And, and not only that, but, but also they didn't, they didn't trade in the kind of tragedy, as you mentioned, that my second one kind of did. But my first and third didn't and don't trade in the kind of tragedy that people are very comfortable associating with Native people. Um, um, you know, you you tell a story um, about a cl- teaching a class, and your students were re- reading um, literature. Mm. And they were reading a story by Sherman Alexie, um, and there's a a sentence that he has. There's just two words: Indian tears. And right. and you write about how your students all knew what that meant, or thought they knew what that meant. Oh, exactly. Yeah. The sentence is, Victor's father cried huge gaping tears, Indian tears. But those tears aren't qualified further on in the paragraph or uh-huh. the page or the story. And so I asked them. In fact, we didn't read the whole story. I just gave them that line. I, I read the line out loud to them, and their assignment was to tell me what Indian tears might be and uh, what, what they thought Indian tears were. And they had these in, elaborate, elaborate and heartfelt um, uh speculations mm-hmm. about you know the loss of land and language and and poverty and alcoholism and and I said well where do you get that and I said I think that you get that because you've been trained to imagine that and so this class is going to be largely about training ourselves to see behind what we're given to see how these images are made to see how they're made and and um, deployed, and so that's what the class becomes after that. Um, is it that the associations they brought to that were wrong, or that for you um, there's so much more, both to Indian Tears and beyond um, Indian Tears? Well, I guess not necessarily wrong because you know. The story or the stories of, of Native lives are often hard stories. And even my own family, they're sometimes, they're hard stories. Life is difficult at times. You know, we are not strangers to tragedy. But, so these impressions they had, while not necessarily factually were wrong, I think were wrong in the sense that they were incomplete to the point of parody. And because, as you say, there is so, so much more, um, both to life and to what is, what's possible to imagine about that life, that one doesn't see much of or hasn't seen much of yet, both you know, in, in either in movies or fiction or, or music or, or just our, our popular conceptions of what Indian lives are like. You know, and it occurred to me when I was thinking about that also that another phrase that I come across in my work it's a phrase, Native American spirituality. And that's yeah. also a phrase you can drop <laughs> in, or that gets dropped in all kinds of contexts. And everyone in the room thinks they know what that is. 
Everyone does, but I mean, <laughs> there there are still 500 tribes, over 500 tribes in the United States alone, and you know, each one of them has, you know, very different ideas about self and family in place and afterlife and before life and and all of those, and so. Native American spirituality is a catchphrase or a shortcut to something that is supposed to be sort of egalitarian and earth-based and kind and sort of fuzzy and and, um, and uh, safe mm-hmm. for consumption. But and also so somehow are, are open, I mean, that, that, that you can go partake in them, which is what I find. I don't usually generally find that it works that way, but I think people think of a sweat lodge is something anyone could go visit and have the experience, right? Yeah, people do think of think of um, you know native ceremonies as sort of open, or that they should be open to them, if only because the person who might want to attend is good-hearted or sympathetic or liberal or or you know or drives a hybrid. <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. But but at least in the Ojibwe context, um, and again, every tribe is different. Some some tribes, their ceremonies are very open, and anyone can come. Um, but Ojibwe ceremonies, you know, it's very different. Mm-hmm. They're very tightly controlled, some of them, and very secretive. Hmm. You, um, you tell a story also about an Indian agent asking an Ojibwe man earlier yeah. in American history this question, who are you? And that that is somehow emblematic of Indian experience in, in that he could not answer that question in, in the terms in which it was asked. And I, I, I want to mm. understand why not. Well, it's not emblematic of Indian experience, but it was just it's a, an example, I think, that shows that that in a given culture, a person might have a very different sense of who he or she is than one might have in, say, American culture. In America, you're supposed to be able to make yourself. Mm-hmm. America is where people go to to both make their fortunes and remake themselves. That was the sort of, you know, that was how America advertised itself, you know, in the early days. But not everyone believes that you invent yourself. You can make or remake yourself. Um, or that identities are even constructed. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of think they are, but but this example is of a young man who was uh, in line to to sign up for the treaty rules for annuities during the treaty making process in the mid nineteenth century. And this, by the way, is a story that my father heard someplace. He's a he's a compulsive collector of stories, <laughs> okay, and compulsive teller of them as well, which. Annoyed me as a kid, but I'm very grateful for that now. As a writer, uh, <laughs> as as a son and yeah, as a writer, yeah. and uh, I mean, he told me stories. He must have told me this story, you know, twenty times, and I roll my eyes. Like, yes, Dad. Yeah, Dad. Sure, Dad. <laughs> but now I know it. And so the story is about this this guy who's in line to get on the rolls, and to get on the rolls, they have to have a name for you. And the Indian agents didn't like, typically, didn't like using Ojibwe names, which are long and, in their opinion, cumbersome. So they'd ask people, you know, for translations, or they'd they'd sometimes give them their own name. Hmm. Um, and so there were a lot of Native people walking around with with uh, the names of non-Native people, just because the Indian agent was, fl- you know, flattered to think that everyone should have his name. Hmm. So this young man was asked by the by the Indian agent, "Well, who are you?" And was poised to write down the answer. And so the interpreter asked him, and 
He said, well, skinny way in Dao, which means I'm just, I'm just a young man. <laughs> and so that became the family's name, Skinaway, and it's still a big, big family. But, <sighs> but so for him, you know, who he was was, was he was not. I'm an Indian. I'm a, I'm from such and such a place. I'm a, you know, my my proper name is. And it could just be that he wasn't very bright. I don't know, <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's also possible, right? But but for him, the question meant, well, you know. Who are you on the basis of what you've done, I think, or, or what right. you've done with your life or what you've accomplished? And he's like, well, pff, nothing. I'm, I'm a young man. Hmm. And um, that became the family name, which I think is a great a great family name. Yeah. Well, and, you know, what strikes me is that um, language does um, is a carrier of our sense of self, the way we use it, the uh, way we experience it. And it, But yeah. it seems to me that for most people that is unconscious um, yeah. and you um, have been somehow forced or compelled to, to, to become conscious of that to, to reckon with it to reckon with language yeah and with how it is how intimately connected it is with who you are on a very on a, at a profound level not just in a, what you could say in a sentence right yeah, yeah. I, mean, I guess I wrestled with that in two ways. One is a, as a writer, as somebody for whom, for whom language and words are 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 what I do, and the really the only thing that I I feel like I'm at all good at. And so, on the other hand, you know, language has been very important to me in particularly the Ojibwe language, um, as a fundamental sort of part of myself and kind of a, a mission to try and, and help preserve and protect the Ojibwe language precisely because it, it, it is, as you say, the vehicle for, for both self-expression and, and perhaps for cultural expression as well. Mm-hmm. And without it, um, without our language, if our language were to die off, we would be in a very, very sorry place. And I mean, it, it seems to me as I read you that in kind of reclaiming Ojibwe, um, you have you have learned about and incorporated parts of yourself, of your identity, of what brings you joy, of what makes you human. That that some of that can only be expressed in Ojibwe. I mean, is that is that taking it too far? No, I don't think so. I mean, I wasn't raised with very much of the language at all. Um, through no fault of my mother or my my grandparents on on her side of the family, uh, my grandmother was sent to boarding school in Toma, Wisconsin, at age four, and I don't think she was allowed home until she was ten. She left as a monolingual Ojibwe speaker. She came back as a monolingual English speaker. And so, there was a government program and process that tried to divest Native people of their native languages. Right. And really, really very few people were untouched by that process. So I wasn't raised with, with much of the language, although all the ceremonial doings that my, my family took me to put me face-to-face with that language while growing up. And um, I wanted that language to be part of me, and and that that want, I guess, was forged in, in the multicultural crucible of my college years, where <laughs> of Princeton. where we, 
at Princeton, which is indeed sort of, you know, sort of at the forefront of this sort of multicultural, I don't know what you want to call it, um, discussions. Huh. Or at least it was, it was a place where those discussions were happening, you know, maybe because of, of its, its uh, Ivy League status. It seemed pressing that it, it recognized the sort of virtues and, and value of, of other paradigms, cultural mm-hmm. paradigms. And, uh, but, but so, so in those years, you know, in college, you, you, you basically you're, you learn how to talk and think about yourself, but both by deciding who you belong with and also by deciding who and what you're not. And that's everyone sort of makes themselves contrary to what this young man Skinaway says. Right. <laughs> um, I think, and um, so that language seemed to me to be an important part of that. And I should say that my older brother felt this more keenly and more strongly and sooner than mm. I did. And and after he left, after he graduated Princeton, he moved directly back home, and he devoted himself to learning Ojibwe. And has become sort of, <laughs> I like to think of him as the great red hope. <laughs> and one of them anyway. Right. Um, and uh, where you know, that's what he does and that he does it so well. And he's, he's such a beautiful speaker of, of the language. And his life work now revolves around the language and ceremony and the interrelationship and interplay between the two. And I saw that. I saw him doing that. And uh, I admired it so much. And I wanted to have relationships with these elderly Ojibwe people for whom English was a kind of secondhand clothing that they, hmm. that they wore in public, but it really didn't define them. It didn't make sense to them, and they didn't express themselves well. And um, these were sort of these, these precious people that I wanted to understand not on my terms, not on my college, Ivy League educated terms. I wanted to understand them in their terms, and I wanted to share them. Hmm. And the, really the only way to do that was, was through the language. And, and there's another aspect of it too, which is, and this is even more important, I think, for a lot of, a lot of Native people who are involved in language revitalization efforts, which is that a lot of times over the last you know, 50, 60 years, a lot of Native people define themselves as Native by virtue of what they've lost. Right. You know? Right. I'm Native because I'm poor, because I've, you know, because I was, quote, unquote, forced on a reservation, because I drank powdered milk and grew up in HUD housing. And, and because that narrative I've we all know a- as well, again. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Because I've lost my cousins, because, you know, because I've struggled with alcohol or whatever. And there's validity in that. There really is. But what I really love about language revitalization and what is so key to it is that, is that it's always been ours. It's never been given to us. It's never, our native languages aren't forced on us. And uh, it's a chance to define ourselves on and in our own terms and in ways that have nothing to do with what's been taken we can define ourselves by 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 virtue of what we've saved and these elderly people these these people who for many years couldn't get work the i'm thinking of primarily monolingual or bilingual ojibwe speakers for whom ojibwe is their first language 
they were considered, you know, backwards or simple or uneducated, and they had a terrible time sometimes finding work or supporting mm-hmm. their families, and their sort of social credit was very low. Um, they weren't the kinds of Indians that people tried to be, you know, be friends with. And now, and now, these people who struggled <laughs> so long—they are the most precious, right? The, the most revered, the most appreciated. In the work, people, and I think, yeah, you and your brother are going to treat them as the keepers of treasures, right? And 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 not just us, but but many people, mm-hmm. many people, and um, and I think it's about time. I think these people are just the people I know are wonderful. There's wonderful, interesting people. They're so funny. Yeah. I do want to talk in just a little while about this work that you're doing, your, this project. But I, sure. I would like first of all to. So when you talk about language revitalization, and uh, I think you are you're referring to the same thing in a positive way when people talk about um, endangered languages, um, rescuing right. endangered languages. Right, um, right. But one of the things when scientists do this or anthropologists, you know, one of the things they're trying to figure out is how speech influences thought, um, mm. whether grammar is innate or learned, and how all of this forms who we are. And um, I, I'm curious to hear from your knowledge of, you know, and kind of coming back to Ojibwe and learning it mm. as an adult, um, how you experience those propositions about how language is, a, is about more than speech. Um, I mean, just I have a few um, notes that I took that from uh-huh. much of what you wrote, but I, you know, I, want, I wanted you to kind of take us inside what you find uh, intriguing and fascinating in particular about this particular language. You know, one thing you said is that Ojibwe um, is dominated by verbs. <laughs> yes, I mean, that intrigues me. So what, what difference does that make? Mm. Well, we're going to talk loose here in ways that I think, is it... Is it um, Who's that linguist from MIT, George? He wrote the language instinct. Um, I don't know. Pinter? Oh, oh, is, um, is it Steven Pinker? Steven Pinker, yeah. Yes. So I'm going to talk loose and easy in ways that Steven Pinker would not appreciate, probably. Okay. Um, who doesn't really believe in cultural relativism vis-a-vis language. He thinks there's a language instinct. He thinks grammar is hardwired and, and um, that no languages contain speech a special way of knowing something um, that another language wouldn't contain. Um, so we're going to ignore his argument for the time being. And there is some, there's some interesting um, aspects of that argument, which I find, I find really compelling, and he's, he's an informed fellow. But um, what Ojibwe affords in terms of its, how it infects thought or inflects thought process, mm-hmm. um, well, like you say, it's two-third verbs. It's a very active, fluid language. Um, so you have a language with many more verbs than nouns. And so there's a kind of nuance. Now, I, I also should say that it possesses a nuance that I don't possess, I don't think. Um, not like the kind of nuance I have with English. Mm-hmm. I don't think my Ojibwe is anywhere near as good as my English. But it possesses a kind of, a kind of nuance in terms of how it can... Um, Create or describe, and then and then pose and reinvestigate actions and relationships between people and, and peoples and 
people and things. I mean, this is hard to do, but can you, can you, again, this is the kind of thing that, especially in one's mother tongue, you don't even think about. And I don't even exactly. know what the relationship is in terms of the, what's the percentage of nouns to verbs in English. Um, I don't know. I, but um, can you think of, can you give me an example of an idea or a thought which would be transformed um, or nuanced in a different way in if you were saying it in a dip way, by this prevalence of verbs. Hmm. Off the top of my head. Mm. She asked me a really hard Okay, one. well, think of it I, I can think of, I mean, it's easier. I mean, maybe this is the nature of examples themselves. I can uh-huh. think of it in terms of nouns um, <laughs> in a dip way. Yeah. Less so than, than, than verbs. And one, well, there's actually a, a little children's song that was recorded in the early part of the 19th century by Henry Rowe Schoolcraft, written down, that is. And then it was borrowed by Longfellow in the Song of Hiawatha, and it's about fireflies. And there's one line in that song, it's really a children's ditty, sort of like um, London Bridges, but an Ojibwe, Ojibwe equivalent, where the word for, for, for fireflies, wawa tesi, and... Uh, it says, Wawatesi, Wawatesi, Wawatese Mawashin is the first line. So a literal translation would be firefly, firefly, of the first two words in that line. And the last word, it changed firefly, Wawatesi, yeah, into, mm-hmm. into a verb. So you can make something a verb um, very easily in mm. Ojibwe. So it's basically firefly, firefly, firefly for me. Hmm. Oh. So so it has like a triple play, both you know, be yourself for me, and then blink and coast hmm. for me, and then just fly for hmm. me at the same time, and um, and so there's there's a kind of wordplay in that little children's ditty, which is. Yeah, as complicated as children make speech, which I think is really, really one a wonderful example of of the kind of, the kind of magic, in the language, where you can make words do so many things at the same time. Now you can do this with any language. You can make you can make words do double and triple duty, and you can't. Then one shouldn't write. But um, but Ojibwe does it in a way I think that is that is quite. Special, right? And, and what else would you would you describe? What what other particularities like that? What other magic um, do you think of? Hmm. I can think of some dirty jokes. <laughs> as long as you only say them in Ojibwe, it's okay. This is public radio, <laughs> so it's okay to offend the Ojibwe listenership. <laughs> <right>. Is that, <laughs> but not the English language literature? That's, what does that say? As long as it would be acceptable to them and you, I'm trusting um, you on that. Got you, got you, got you. Um, right. Well, um, I'll just give you know. Here's another thing I noticed in your writing. You talked about the namesake, the word yeah. namesake. That's important. Yeah. That's really important culturally, and that's also connected to the word for body. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a that's a great example. I was avoiding it because I just used it in a written piece, and I didn't want to repeat myself. I seem oh. like I only know two things, <laughs> but uh, I know like three things. Okay. So <laughs> we're two thirds the way there. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so this example of um, uh, when somebody gives someone else an, an Ojibwe name, 
um, you when you're given an Ojibwe name, you have anywhere from a couple to, to a handful to, if you're greedy, you know, seven, eight, nine namesakes. You have one person who's running the ceremony and, and the others are participate in the ceremony. And part of that is they also give you names and they also um, either theirs or something they might have dreamed or something hmm. like that. And the word for a namesake, both the person running the ceremony and these other attendants um, in the ceremony is, is my namesake would be Nio Wee'e. And um, Nio is, is my body. And um, so the word for the person doing the naming is if you want to say, you sort of, I'm giving, a, you know, the person to whom I've given a name, Nioe'e. And then if you've been given a name, you, you want to refer to the person who's done the giving, it's the same word. Hmm. And really what it means is is it's derived from the word for body, which is your the idea being that when you're giving somebody a name or receiving one, you're partaking in their soul. You're basically gifting somebody a portion of your soul. And uh, which will reside then in that other person's body. And that is something that's a, mm, a piece of knowledge uh, or sense, a piece of your identity that you carry with you through your life. Yeah, yeah. All those names, because you can get anywhere from, from just one to, to six or seven at, 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 that, at that ceremony, which usually occurs, of course, when you're, when you're ideally, when you're quite young. And... Uh, and so, so you're basically – and so when you give someone a name, you're giving them part of your soul. And when you accept a name, you're both accepting the soul given and you're giving part of your own. And so you're connected in ways that are, that are profound and meaningful and communicated by the very word, which the English translation namesake doesn't really cover. Mm, um, no. It doesn't really cover it at all. And so those are the kinds of understandings which, which are – um, obvious to Ojibwe speakers with with the language. In your novel, in your most recent novel, the translation of Doctor Appel, you say it that right? Do you, do you say Appel? Um, Appelles. You the, say Appelles. Oh, it's yeah. a Greek. okay. So Doctor Appelles, you know, you, you he is described as a different person when he's feeling like a different person when he speaks the language of his, tri- his tribes and others that he can joke, he can flirt. And then there's this very evocative phrase, you say it, and these languages, and they lend themselves to memory. Explain hmm. that to me. God, I don't remember writing that. <laughs> um, no, I do. I do remember it very vividly. <laughs> um, well, for, for this character, I mean, this gets back to one of the things that we started our conversation um, with, which was this idea that, that myths and ideas about Indian people often obscure obscure the, the true dimensions of our of our lives. And that's very much the case for, for Dr. Appelles. Um, since he he's kind of shy and not very stoic and a little pudgy and uh, super smart but not very personable and um, lives in a city and works as a librarian of sorts um, at a very strange library, <laughs> his life does not conform to any of the ideas that most people have about Indian lives. And part of the reason is that those ideas are ideas that people have in, at least in the context of America, in English. So English is almost the language that we have for storytelling about Indians hmm. is almost, almost his enemy, or it's certainly not helping him 
helping him express his his truest self. And it's it's these other native languages which he both had as a child and acquired as a as a as someone studying linguistics that he feels more comfortable in because he doesn't have to do combat with in those languages with the trove of notions and icons and images and ideas that attend um, Indians in English. In these native languages, he's sort of unburdened of all of those things. And so he's, since unburdened, he feels much more comfortable. And he is, he becomes sort of newly made in them. And it's easier for him to more accurately remember his past. Because the danger is for native people too, and also for, for the, my character, that that we're as likely to to misconstrue ourselves, perhaps, in English. Um, and that does speak to this idea that a language carries more than words. I mean, I think what you're saying yeah. also is that while English can tell some of the narrative and the story of what happened to Native people, yeah. certain memories are only going to be kept alive in that those tongues. That's true. And, and in the Ojibwe context, two other things are kept alive in those tongues. Two very important things. One is uh, ceremonial life. The Ojibwe ceremonial, um, Ojibwe ceremonies are, are very rigidly enforced. And this runs counter to the idea of native spirituality as kind of a kind of a emotional and spiritual free-for-all where you just have to feel it. You can just feel it and just mm. be it and do it. And Ojibwe ceremonies run counter to that notion where they're they're really tightly controlled. They're 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 very rigid. They're in some ways and, and orthodoxy plays a big part in, in those ceremonies, which really which means, give me idea. an example of what orthodoxy well, for would example, be in a ceremony. Two, two examples. Like one, in certain Ojibwe ceremonies, it's there's a discourse around how those ceremonies are passed down, which says quite strongly that you cannot do the ceremonies in any other language than Ojibwe. Hmm. And two, you cannot use any kind of modern form of technology to preserve them. Now, there's a reason which I can't go in, and you can't talk about them either outside, <laughs> okay. of, outside of the ceremony. But so we can talk about the reasons and rationale in that the substance of the ceremony itself is largely concerned with this idea of transmission and of, of sort of human-to-human -human and spirit-to-human transmission of knowledge, healing, as communicated through legends and songs and procedures. And um, so... So the ceremonies can't be done in any other language. They can't be written down. They can't be recorded. You can't videotape them. Um, and so the, if the language goes, those ceremonies, which are central to who we are, they go. Hmm. And in fact, there was an old man named Archie Mose that my, with whom my brother uh, worked and, and studied with for, for many years before Archie passed away in 1996, and I knew him not as well as, as my brother did, and I was involved with, with him and his family in, in ceremonies as well, but not to the extent that my brother was. Um, I was probably too busy going to U2 concerts or something. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Archie was running one of these ceremonies. Archie was born in 1901. 
He started his ceremonial commitments when he was 14 in 1914, which he continued to his death in 1996. So he was 96 when he died. His father was 102 when his father passed away in 1971. Hmm. Mike Mose. His mother was, I think, something alleged to be 108 or 110. Long-lived family. But there was a point, and my brother saw this, where Archie was very frustrated that people weren't understanding what was supposed to be done in the ceremony. And he was frustrated with, with the, the level of their commitment. And he was very uncharacteristically frustrated because he was a very gentle, mm. mellow, um, kind guy. Although he was a guy that scared me to death. <laughs> and um, it scared me. I was just nervous around him all the time, because, primarily because he knew so much. And when he looked at you, it just was like he saw everything. And there was no point in hiding anything <laughs> from him. But in any event, he got frustrated. And so he, he left the ceremonial enclosure, sort of a wigwam of sorts. And he, he, he was in a wheelchair at this point. For, he didn't walk well. He, he could walk, but it was, it was difficult and painful. And he got up from his place in the wigwam and he walked outside and stood there. And he says, and then he spoke in English. He said, I had to come out here because... I can't use English in there. And I can't use English in there because the spirit does not understand me when I speak English. Hmm. But I want you to understand me, and that's why I'm speaking English. And then he started to, to sort of yell at people <laughs> or, <laughs> in English. And um, so there's, there's that. But there's also this issue of, of, of our – and this is a political issue too around language – of our sovereignty, of, of uh our – Ojibwe tribal sovereignty. sovereignty. Tribal sovereignty. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah tribal sovereignty. And, and Red Lake Reservation, the Red Lake Nation knows this so well. For example, they were going to have a, a negotiation with the state, of the state of Minnesota over some water rights. And they asked my brother to come up and interpret. And so they've done this on a number of occasions. And what happened was they delivered their testimony in Ojibwe. My brother translated. And... Um, translated for, for the representatives from Minnesota. Now, all of the people speaking Ojibwe also spoke English very, very well. And so someone asked them, like, why do you bother? And they said, well, it's really important for them to remember who we are. They tend to forget that. Hmm. Well, this is a different nation. We have a different language. This is just a reminder. <laughs> It's very powerful mm -hmm. when you see it happen. And mm -hmm. it's just, it's, I love that about Red Lake. It's, it's an amazing place. You know, the statistics are um, pretty daunting and generally in terms of languages disappearing. Um, yeah. Some have said that half to 90% of the languages now spoken on Earth might disappear in this century. And on this continent, yeah, on this continent, there were something like 300 tribal languages at first contact with Europeans, and now mm. only, I think you wrote this, only about a hundred are left. Only a handful will remain by the end of this century. Ojibwe will be one of those. It will be. Um, is there something in Ojibwe culture or language that has made it more tenacious? I don't think there's anything, um, I wouldn't privilege the language in terms of something special about it that, that has ensured its survival. But there are a couple of factors. In fact, it's such a complicated language. And it was, by the way, in the Guinness Book of World's Record, Guinness Book of World's World Records as being 
the most difficult language to learn. Hmm. Now, I don't know who, how they, how do they decide? <laughs> someone, okay, your job is to learn every language and <laughs> which, one was, one. Right. which one was hardest. But um, so I think there actually is a vote against it. It's a difficult, complicated language. A given verb can have 4,000 different forms by the time you're done monkeying around with it. Hmm. And, uh, and that's not an exaggeration. That's, uh, someone did a count. And, uh, and so it's actually a difficult, difficult language to come to as a second language learner, which makes its survival a little more precarious than a language that might be easier. I don't know what languages might be easy. All languages are both easy and hard. We all acquire them, and it's all, they're all difficult at a certain age. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But I think what Ojibwe had in its favor mostly was geography. That until very recently, our communities in the northern United States, in Minnesota and Wisconsin and Michigan, and but particularly in Ontario and Manitoba, um, were incredibly hard to get to. <laughs> really? You think that that's part of the explanation? A hugely, a big, 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 big part of it. Because Absolutely. they were, so, it was isolated. The isolation helps. And there are reserves in Canada that you can only get to by float plane. Hmm. Ojibwe reserves that aren't accessible by road. There are no roads still to this day. And... You can get there by float plane. You can get there by canoe. And I've traveled to a lot of these reserves by canoe just because I like canoeing. I'll show up and I'll get out and I'll start speaking Ojibwe. And in the United States, you wouldn't do that because you might offend someone if they don't know. They might feel like you're mocking them. People are really sensitive, right? Yeah. But then at these reserves, I'll get out and I'll say, hey, you know, where's the portage and where's the store? And they'll look at me like I'm crazy because I don't look like I should speak it. <laughs> And everyone from, from the smallest child to the oldest adult speaks Ojibwe. And it's because these places are remote, it helps. Contact with, you know, with work and schools and churches and things like that and popular culture and all of the kind of migrations that, that occur when you have a good highway system, right? Which all is those dangerous were, for languages, I guess. It's dangerous for languages. Mm -hmm. so, are, so, is, so is satellite TV, which is very widely used on these remote reserves now, by the way. Everyone watches Discovery Channel hmm. and Spike. <laughs> Spike TV. Well, and, um, they do so the reruns of this yeah. Star Trek Next Generation. So. Geography helps. Um, and, and the ceremonies help too. This, this idea that, you know, that helped keep it alive, that, that this idea that, that language and spirituality were so closely related, they couldn't be separated. And for those Ojibwe people who, who remained traditional, who, who didn't want to convert to Christianity, language then became something that they also held on to. So this project, you and your brother Anton have initiated yeah. this project to record, transcribe, and translate Ojibwe speech to compile the yeah. first practical Ojibwe language grammar. I mean, tell me how you're going about that. Slowly. Um, I mean, f first, I mean, we're not the only ones working in the field by any stretch of the imagination. In the field of Ojibwe language revitalization, there are a lot of people, and a lot of them working a lot harder, I should say, than I am. Um, I think of myself as the smallest gear and a larger machine bent to the effort of really you know, saving the language, and I'm a tiny part of it. And I don't say that out of any kind of false modesty or even modesty. It's just true. Mm -hmm. And... Um, but the project what, that 
we're working on, which is unique, because I think we are really the only ones working in this way, and at least in our region, is to come up with this practical grammar. Now, there have been um, grammars published by linguists, a couple, I think, which are not useful to many other people other than linguists. Hmm. There is no published grammar. We have a few dictionaries, and they're fantastic um, dictionaries. And another one is sort of about to be launched, I guess, in the next few years, which is even better than the, the ones that we already have. But we don't have a grammar, one that little lays out the rules of, 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 of the Ojibwe language that could be used by second language learners and immersion schools and Ojibwe language programs in conventional high schools, tribal colleges, four-year universities and colleges. And, um, I mean, recovering a language takes a lot of things. It takes a commitment to using it so that the spoken word survives. But it also, books are also a part of that process, resource materials. And so that's what we're working on. The way we're going about it is we're trying to capture as many different kinds of speech as we can. And in, to do that, you you are speaking with elder Usually, yeah. right? Elderly. Oh, usually elderly, yeah. Um, Ojibwe elders from Wisconsin and Minnesota and, and Ontario, mostly. And are you you're kind of deciphering how the language works from hearing them speak it? Yeah. I mean, we, we try to, and my brother's a lot better at this than I am um, because he's a lot more fluent, but you try to maneuver the conversation into, into um, not often traveled grammatical Trails. Gosh, that's interesting. So you try to maneuver it, and it's just saying, like, oh, this is what happened to me. You know, so you have a first person past tense story. When I was a kid, I went to the store, then I saw him. So you have first to third person. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then he ran into this other guy, which brings you to a weird Ojibwe um, verb form, which is third person to fourth person. We have a fourth person. Here. How does that, what's the fourth person? Well, fourth person is he said to him. So someone who's removed from the action of the story but in, involved, so it's sort of another remove oh. in time or, or action. Huh. And um, so, so those are very few, but, you know, as opposed to, well, what we said to you all mm-hmm. was different than what they said to me. And so you have, you know second person plural to first person and then third person plural to first person and then you have sort of dubitative actions might have gone mm-hmm. should have you know mm-hmm. they might have come but didn't there's a whole special tense for something that was going to happen but never did mm. and um it's do we have that in of, english i don't know we that have we have it in the same kind of with the same kind of precision that right. we have it in right and that sounds is so, different so like i was going to it's like i I'm going, Nindija. I went, Ningi Ija. Um, I was going to go, Ningi Ija, Ningi Ijaban. I was going to go, but didn't, Ningi Ija si Naban. And it's still one word. It's still like what I spoke was on a sentence, but just a word, which is sort of created all of these different parts. And so the, the trick is to gather as many different examples of, of, our grammar in as they occur naturally in conversation and from as many different places and dialects as we can and to then we collect them we record them basically and then translate 
or that first transcribe, write them down, then translate into English. And then there'll be the process of coming up with a grammar book. Now, my brother is working with a linguist and, um, named John Nichols, who's a fantastic guy and a great resource. And um, they're the ones handling most of the grammar stuff, um, a lot of which is beyond me. I'm going to be handling most of the, the translation, I think. I'm a much better translator than I am a um, recorder or a, a linguist. And translating involves a different skill set, I think. Yeah. The pace is different, and, and it's, it's something I'm, I'm actually more comfortable doing. I enjoy doing it a lot. So it's, it's the sort of typical writerly kind of thing where you hide someplace and don't talk to people and just <laughs> you know, write stuff down and figure out what it means, <laughs> which I'm very comfortable doing. I'm curious, um, as you embarked on this adventure of, of speaking with people and listening to them, mm. um, what have you discovered that you, you, you never expected that has really broadened <laughs> your imagination about this word Indian, for example? Um, mm. And maybe, you know, tell, give me some, a story or particular people. Just. Yeah, there are these two guys who are first cousins that were recording from... Um, they're from a small village on the Red Lake Reservation called Panema, which is a very remote village. And it, it held on to language and to traditional customs in ways that other villages and other communities in the region had difficulty hanging on to through no fault of their own. But Panema was it's a special place, and, and the people were stubborn, and missionaries came, and, and, <laughs> and the churches they built were burnt down twice, and they just left and never came back. <laughs> And so the community is mostly traditional um, and follows Ojibwe ceremonial practices. But there, there are these two cousins, one guy named um, Tom Stillday. Everyone calls him Tommy J. And his cousin, Eugene Stillday. And uh, they're very different in terms of personality and outlook and, and so on. But we've been recording them both. And, and we went to Tommy J's house. And, and he's also my daughter's namesake, hmm. by the way. She was born um, after you got to know him, after you started yeah, this? Yeah, I got to know him when I was in high school. Okay. And I've known him for a long time. And um, through family connection, my parents knew him since the 60s. And um, both my parents knew him well, and known him all those years. And then I met him when I was in high school. And um, he asked me to do some favors for him, and I did. And he once blamed me for almost burning down his house, which was a total, total lie. <laughs> and, uh, so you, you go way back with him. <laughs> we go way back. And so we're, we're in his house, and his wife, um, Mary Lou's there, and, and um, his son was there, Dexter. Yeah, I think Dexter. And people are kind of coming in and out, and Dexter's working on his car, and we're talking to Tommy, and he's talking in a jib way, and we're just asking him stuff about his childhood and stuff about you know, his thoughts on things. And he starts talking about apocalypse, about... <laughs> How one is can see signs of that the world is is out of whack. Now this is what you'd expect from from a native elder, right? We're used to these kinds of harangues. We're used to hearing about them anyway, about sort of proper conduct and the earth out of balance and this kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. so you know we're listening to it and talking about sort of plate shifts and lowering water tables and <laughs> and you know and sort of you know earthquakes and stuff. And it was interesting. And so <laughs> we finished the session and. Uh, we're leaving, and we're in the car driving back to, to Bemidji. And I said, Tony, you know, I think his whole talk, I know, where he, I know where he got that. And Tony said, what do you mean? I said, 
I saw the same show on the Discovery Channel last night. I swear to you, I just watched it on the Discovery Channel. And it was the same examples, you know, dropping water tables and volcanoes. And and Tony said, yeah, but look at the bright side. At least we learned the word for volcano. (laughs) And because Tommy had, you know, I didn't ask him, but I'm I'm certain that he watched the same show on Discovery Channel. He's got satellite TV, right? Right. And and then he just just sort of incorporated this into what he wanted to talk about and then came up with the word for volcano, which which I don't think we we had before, but Mm. it's not very hard anyway to come up with one for that. But... Mm. And so that was this great, great sort of example that that it's an ancient language, but full of ancient understandings. But it's also adaptable. It's also a, a modern language with modern understandings. Hmm. Hmm. And um, and then his cousin is very different. And um, he was his cousin Eugene was talking about, and he first told the story in English. We took a break and we we're just chatting in English, telling a story about when he was a kid and his family was laid low by. The flu, his parents, siblings, everyone but him in the small shack on the, in the village of Panema, dead of winter, snows deep. And he just described, and I can't remember any of the specific words he used now, but, but um, and then we had him, he described that experience, and then we asked him to retell it in Ojibwe. And so we have this great, we, the tapes were running, so we have it in English and we have it in Ojibwe. And, and um, I just, I don't know how to explain it well, but he described sitting by the wood stove. He couldn't get the lantern going. His fingers were too cold and he was too scared. And he couldn't get the the kerosene lantern going. He must have been eight or nine years old. Everyone's unconscious on the floor. Hmm. Um, And people knew about the flu. People died from it back then, especially native people. This would have been probably in the 30s, uh, late 30s maybe, maybe early 40s. I'm not sure. And... um, and he described sitting by the stove, which had a little grate on it, and that the only light in the cabin was coming from the grate. And he describes the way the flames were, were flickering in and out. And he sat there sort of holding on to that light as the one thing that was keeping him from freaking out. And that it would sort of it would light up in flashes, his, his family, none of whom were moving on the floor. Mm. And that all of a sudden, um, in comes Tommy Jay's father, Eugene's uncle who came in and then just took Eugene and walked him through the snow back to, back to his house, back to, back to um, Tommy Jay's house, gave him some bread he hadn't eaten in three days, he said, and some water, and then he went back to Eugene's family and stayed with them, kept the fire going, and got them healthy again, and none of them passed away, none of them died. But just this, this, both the sense of isolation and loneliness and terror, but then this, this sudden salvation in the form of his uncle. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that what was, what was special about it was just this sort of, was for me this, this sense of family and kinship. Now, it didn't have anything necessarily to do with Ojibwe, but the telling of it in Ojibwe just was was very meaningful to me. And I, I don't know how to explain it, but it was, it was like the, the the memory of both that terror and that salvation was kept alive hmm. in equal measures. So, you know, in in Ojibwe, in a way that was that was so beautifully drawn by Eugene, who's such an amazingly beautiful speaker of the language, hmm. but who's a, is a very quiet and very humble guy. Um, especially in English. And 
and just a very mellow guy, very understated. But the story was was so special, and um, it gave me a glimpse of what life was like, how hard it was, but but how close families were and still are, of course. Um, Two, it, it gave me a picture of a time that I'll never experience. And a, a portrait of a kind of poverty, a kind of vulnerability that goes with a kind of poverty that'll also um, I've never experienced. And that was special. And I was really grateful for him and to him for sharing the, that story and others you know, with us. You know, something I, I was thinking about as I was reading you, and I'm, it's occurring to me again as I'm hearing you speak, is um, another program we're working on looking into the legacy of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. This is appealing to your Jewish side. Mm. Um, he is very important to him, this teaching from the Talmud that words create worlds. Mm. And, um, and you, you know, you've described, and to me this is, this is akin to that idea, that part of what you do as a writer is, and as a teacher is, is translating your own life. Um, I mean, I feel I hear that in the story you just told, and even as you're telling it, you're grasping for the words to describe what it was, right. and yet it comes through. Right. It's kind of it's it's mysterious. The, the same, you know, the same idea that that words give life. You know, I guess is also something you find in in Ojibwe um, culture. Hmm. In one part of the creation story, you know. We were made out of fairly inert materials, and we had no life until until touched by sort of breath of the Creator. We were we were blown on, and then and then came to life. And this this link, of course, between language and breath, mm. speech and breath, is very much alive in, in how the ceremonies, Ojibwe ceremonies, continue. Um, there's a Jewish ceremonies are based around sort of two things, mostly either either um, uh, legend telling, one thing, um, storytelling, but a very particular kind, and also um, song. And there's very much a sense that the song is is when being sung in, in as part of a ceremony, is going right from from both the vessel of the drum being used and into the singer or through the singer and then directly into the into the body of, of the person receiving the song. And um, the words are, and the, of course the tune, one would hope. <laughs> um, but the words are communicating and giving that person life as we were given life originally. And so that's, that's you know, it's it's similar. Yes. I guess. You, you once wrote... Um, that if your language was lost, if 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 Ojibwe were lost, um, we we will if we lose Ojibwe, I can't remember exactly what. But then you said we we will lose beauty. Yeah. What do you mean by that? What 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 is in your mind when you say that in your heart? Well, like that story I was talking about that that Eugene shared with us um, is one example of that, and um, and. You know, maybe I could draw on a, a different tradition, which would be a French literary tradition, to come <laughs> to explain it better. But, <laughs> yeah. but Marcel Proust said that, speaking of writing, particularly speaking of writing novels, said that nothing really exists in and of itself in a, in a book. That that characters and situations 
and places only take on life by way of contrast. And um, that's how novels build themselves, or through, through creating contrasts and tensions, resolutions and more contrasts and tensions. And um, I think the same could be said for, for life, hmm. that nothing exists in and of itself. Everything exists only by way of contrast. And um, so in and of itself, I think Ojibwe is, is beautiful, just the, the, the animal sound of the language, how it flows, to, to the kinds of trickery that the, that the words themselves can rig up, like the example of the firefly I gave you. Um, but also um, in contrast to the English with which we are surrounded, Ojibwe seems all the more precious you know, all the more beautiful in that um, you can see differences, especially when differences exist. It's, a, it's an interesting response to a question I think that might be in many people's minds. I think you might look at at the narrowing down of the number of languages in the world as kind of a natural process. It would be possible to say that that's even progress, right? That it comes with technology and with a more unified world. I, I could imagine someone making that case and then asking, People, yeah. right? You know, and then saying, you know, the question would be, but I, I think you, would, you were just, you were just giving an answer to that question. Now, why, why really... Although it may, might be tragic to you, it might be tragic to people you know. Why? Why should this ultimately matter um, to people who don't speak this language and know nothing of it, and whose identity is not formed by it? Mm. Yeah, I think it. I think it does speak to to that question, and, and um, you know, great advances in communication, for instance maybe brought the world closer together, and this might be a cynic's point of view, but it brought us close enough to really hurt each other hmm. <laughs> in things like the First World War, the Second World War, um, more recent endeavors. It hasn't <laughs> led to sort of, you know, a great love-in and mutual understanding. Now, there is, of course, progress in some ways, naturally. Um, but but language, if, if all languages were to die out and be replaced with one, and there were movements... And sort of utopian movements along these lines. Esperanto, I think, yes, is one of them, Esperanto. right? Mm -hmm. um, that the idea was that if we all spoke the same language, we, there'd be no misunderstanding. And um, <laughs> I don't think that's true. And in fact, I don't think misunderstanding is the culprit here. Um, I think, you know, I think the culprit in terms of conflict, you know, deadly or otherwise, is is the sense that that you know, we should all be doing the same thing. Hmm. <laughs> and I, I, I think that. We're quite happily, busily doing different things, and that is, in fact, healthy. And then, yeah. so the culprit is an inability to live creatively with difference. Perhaps so. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, and that's what that's what some of these people like, which is, makes them so fun to talk to. People like Tom Stillday. Some of the Ojibwe and, um, elders you've spoken with. Eugene, yeah, some of these elders that we've talked to that. That they found really interesting ways of living with that, of, of preserving things that are important to them, and and but not they're not shut shut ins, you know, and they're not um, they don't reject you know all things Western and you know posit some sense that you know we have to go back to living in wigwams and you know eating out of birch bark containers, mm. um, which would be 
kind of a drag. And I really, I mean, my travel mug is, you know, what would I do? What would I do without my travel mug? Right. And, um, you know, these, these guys are, they're worldly. I mean, those two in, in particular, they both went to Korea. Tommy Tommy worked heavy equipment. He was in the army, but he he drove a caterpillar in uh, making roads and building fortifications. And he worked heavy equipment in Korea and fought. He's also an infantryman, of course. And um, you know these aren't guys who've lived in only one world. They've, they've lived quite. And then after the war, he, he traveled around Europe on a motorcycle <laughs> and uh, and saw you know saw the world. And, uh, and then came back to, to Red Lake, came back to Panema. You know, you wrote an article in the L.A. Times, um, and you tell a story, and there you describe a moment of kind of epiphany. Yeah. You were spearing with friends on a lake in their treaty area. And, I mean, I do, first of all, want you to talk about what it meant that you were spearing. And you, did, you said something early, early on when we started to talk about um, Ojibwe spirituality being also a matter of practice. And then... You you talked about things like hunting as a, as this, as a lived spiritual practice. So, I want you to tell that story again. But also, also how does how does that activity um, figure in? What what in itself does it mean? Well, um, I was spending time with two friends from Le Couture Reservation in, in um, North Central Wisconsin. And on Le Couture and in that region, they, they've retained, they fought for, in fact, starting in the 70s and concluding recently, uh, fought for and retained their, their off-reservation treaty rights, many of them. One of those treaty rights is the, um, the right to harvest fish, particularly walleye pike, um, with using, quote-unquote, primitive methods, that is to say, spears and nets and to do this before the state season opens, the state angling season. So while non-natives can only use hook and line and can't net and can't spear and will be arrested and fined for doing so, people, you know, native people from that region who are enrolled um, are allowed to do that. Now, this, all the spearing and netting is very tightly controlled by the tribe and, and um, monitored, and, and you know, people tend to, to, to guard this right and to, to use it wisely. So although I'm Ojibwe and I'm, I'm, from, I'm, I'm from a different band, from a different region, and I, my band was not a, did not sign that particular treaty, so I cannot spearfish in that particular area. So I was just hanging out. Okay. Basically, I was, I was drinking coffee, their right. spearing. And, um, and so, you know, for them, it's, 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 a, it's many things at once. Um, they're practicing a treaty right, which was denied them for many, many years. And so it's a political act to go out and to go to the boat landings and offload their, their boats and to go spearing on lakes ringed with the resort homes of, of wealthy Americans in northern Wisconsin. And to be heckled and shouted at and have things thrown off docks at them. This, this, these things have happened. Hmm. It happens. It happens with some regularity. And, uh, and people shouting things, my favorite, my favorite epithet shouted at, at sort of Ojibwe people spearfishing in the treaty areas, Indians go home, <laughs> which I, I just think is so funny. Yeah. <laughs> and um, in any event, so, so it's political. Um, it's also cultural. It's, it's a way of, of harvesting fish with some modern, you know, um, 
some some modern twists, motorboats and headlamps powered by car batteries as opposed to birch bark canoes and and you know, and torches, metal spears versus bone tipped yeah. spears and so on. So so there have been some modern twists, but it's still it's still an ancient cultural practice, a way of people coming together, and it's something that our people have done for for you know, hundreds, if not thousands, of years. And so it links one now with 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 us before, with links us living in modern times with with the past, and that's nice. Spiritually too, um, I mean, there's 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 a whenever an Ojibwe person takes something. This is one of our few instructions. We don't really have commandments. Thou shalt not. Mm. Really, no one's ever told us we shalt not anything. Really. Um, Except commit um, clan incest, that's wrong. Okay. <laughs> but to marry to marry somebody or to, to sort of have a relationship with somebody of your clan, huh. that's probably the only commandment we have. The rest are just sort of, you know, spiritual sort of helpful suggestions. And one of them is, is to, um, you know, always, at least in our cosmology, honor the other beings. The fact of the matter is that those fish were here a long time before we were. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, humans evolved many millions of years after these fish did. So the fish are our elders in a sense, and respect is owed them as elders, in a way. Now, you, I suppose you could go down to the lake and and just sort of say, "Hey guys, I really respect you. You're awesome," and um, use tobacco and sort of have a few words. But there's a way in which you you become related by giving and taking. And so there you harvest the fish, you 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 kill them with spears is probably the best way to put them, or you, you trap them in nets, which also kills them. You fillet them, you, you and then the the first bunch you eat before the season, you'll have you'll have a, a feast and a small ceremony, usually just a family thing. Where you'll you'll sort of give thanks to and for the fish. Hmm. Um but it's a way of becoming closer to them. That's um, so interesting. I mean, it's it's counterintuitive. So it's sort of counter, kind of, yeah. It is counterintuitive, and so there's a sense that you know to become you can become closer if you want to put it another way by killing. And there's actually another Ojibwe idea about that, where um, when people are have lost a loved one and they go into mourning, they go into an official mourning, and it's only a veteran who can bring them out of their official mourning. It's only a what? A veteran? A veteran, someone who's been to war. The idea being that since they've taken life, they've, the phrase that people use is, is in Ojibwe is to touch blood. That huh. only those who have touched blood can, can, can wash away someone's sorrow because they are so intimately related to it, right? Huh. And with the fish, it's, it's, it's a, a similar kind of relationship that to really know them you become related by the taking mm. and the giving because then the fish is dispersed to people who don't fish and it's also a chance for one's ancestors to come back and to eat the food that they would have eaten in their lifetime mm. to feed them and so this is done for fish it's done for the first batch of maple syrup it's done for for um first kills in the fall you know in terms of you know animals that one one might shoot uh, deer ducks rabbits things like that and um, it's done and particularly for wild rice which is 
our biggest food and our most probably our most important food. So there, um, the, in the, fall. the taking is is in the harvesting as well. It's not. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and um, yeah, exactly so. Mm. So so it's 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 a kind of and I hate to say it because it sounds so cheesily comfortably. Um, natively spiritual, but there's a, a kind of reciprocity, at least in the Ojibwe context, um, which is in some ways counterintuitive, um, but in other ways sort of meshes nicely with what people like to think about us. <laughs> right. And does the language also, is there, are there ways to talk about this probably that there, you couldn't talk about it in English? Um, well, yeah. I mean, it, for to both talk about it and and to 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 do the ceremonies that right that all the spirits you talk to aren't sort of disembodied or I guess they are disembodied but they're not <laughs> they have proper names right you know like Joe Johnson and you know they have they're like proper nouns they're mm. like real real people and so and their real names are Ojibwe so you have to know them um, and and also the protocol but also the language because. The understanding is, as this Archie Mose fellow has said, that the spirits don't understand English. That's that's the yeah. that's what people um, some people tend to believe, and so, and of course, in the language itself, I, there are understandings. I, I would think that that um, are unique to the language, which makes this whole process feel more more um, more natural. All I right. guess. So. You, the the moment of epiphany. You're uh, um, drinking coffee while your friends are spearing. Yes. <laughs> and and what we, happened? Well, we're in the boat. It's dark. It's foggy, and Keller and Dave are spearing. One's running the motor. The other one's spearing. Keller was missing. Dave was was hitting. Just for the record, and uh, <laughs> Keller's glad I know bad. that. Yeah, and um, I'm drinking coffee, and and we're just chatting and and speaking Ojibwe, and also speaking English too, sort of diving back and forth between the two. And these are two guys who have been who have been instrumental with a group of other people in starting an immersion school on that reservation, which is an Ojibwe language immersion school, which has had fantastic success. I mean, these these two guys and and their families and and the people they work with, and there's a big long list of them. Have done amazing and important work, and um, and so it's it's just I admire them both a lot, and they're both really funny too, and so we're having a good time. And we we're near shore. You, you do your spearing really close to shore in the shallow water, so we're maybe fifteen twenty feet from shore. Most of the houses are boarded up. It's 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 April, and uh, the vacationers haven't come back <laughs> to their cabins yet. But a few of them are occupied year round, and and. Somebody must have had their window open. I can see lights flickering in the house, so that sort of eerie blue glow of someone's television. And I can hear them. I can hear the program they're watching, and they're watching David Letterman. <laughs> and the top ten list was on, the countdown, the top ten countdown. And uh, and it just seemed so out of place and so impermanent and so so weak. <laughs> Thin and 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 just passing, as passing as the fog that night. That compared to how permanent the endeavor of spearing with these guys felt. You know, this is something we've been doing for so long and still doing, mm-hmm. and still doing with and in the language, and still respecting the fish the way that they're supposed to be respected. 
that felt permanent in comparison. That felt everlasting. And I felt, and I don't always feel this way, but I felt our language can't possibly die. Not with people like this. Mm. Not while doing something like this in this place. We can't possibly lose it. And, um, and I don't always feel that way, but I, I felt it then. And I feel that more often than I feel scared that we're going to lose it. Mm. Well, I, I have loved this, and I think... Um, is there anything else you would want to say? Anything? I don't think so. I think we're. I think we're good. It's been great. You're such a wonderful it's, storyteller. I am. Um, uh, I get that from my father. You do. It's great. I. I. Uh, I just. It was tempting for me just to sit back and listen and <laughs> not do my job. I have a question from behind the glass. I'm going to be quiet for a minute while I'm listening in my headphones. Okay. Sure, I understand it. But that would mean that somebody came in speaking English or learned to speak Ojibwe? Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, you have more than one child now, don't you? One, you have a daughter have two. and two. A daughter and a son. And how are you raising them with, in terms of language? Um, I, I only speak Ojibwe to them both. And uh, so... They're getting two languages at home. My wife, who's Seneca, and who's very good at languages, um, she speaks some Seneca. She also speaks French and Chinese. Um, and she's a smarty pants. She, <laughs> she speaks English to them for the most part. And uh, I only speak Ojibwe to them. She also speaks Ojibwe to them. She's she's both studied it and picked up so much just by you know by by us being together. And then by by me using it exclusively with with uh, the kids at home and when we're around and about, so I only use Ojibwe with with them, and um, it's um it's it's a great pleasure and I'm always so proud, hmm. you know. It, when when my daughter and I, she's two and a half, we'll have these conversations in in Ojibwe, and um, and it also sort of gives me a kind of <laughs> a kind of weapon. And that I can speak to her in Ojibwe, and um, not a weapon, I guess, but it, it gives me an advantage, I guess. Because right, right. I can speak to her in Ojibwe, and nobody will know what I'm saying except right, for her right. when we're out in public. And uh, she was running around, and by what I mean is an advantage where, you know, I can, I can get her to stop misbehaving in ways <laughs> that 
that are useful to me. For example, we were out at a sushi restaurant and for lunch and here in Rochester, New York, and, and she was taking up – first she was stealing all the chopsticks off of all the tables, <laughs> and uh, which was – I was fine with that. And then she's playing in, a, in an adjacent booth, and I'm also fine with that. And this very grumpy-looking guy comes – kind of older fellow comes kind of walking up and he says, I don't suppose I can sit in that booth. And I said, well, I'll, I'll ask her. <laughs> so I, I asked her in English. I said, I said in English, come on, Elsina, you're all done. And she said, no. And then I said in Ojibwe, I said, Elsina, do you really want to stay here and visit with that crazy man standing over you with that really weird look on his face? And then she looked up and she saw this guy and she said, meet you, Dede, meet you, meet you. Like, all done, Dad, all done, all done. And she jumped up in my arms. <laughs> So she didn't have to be rude because she could speak a good boy. You know, something I would love is, um, and I'm just thinking about forward to the production of this, is to hear Mm -hmm. you or someone reading... You know, speaking Ojibwe or reading poetry or something. I don't know. We may Mm. we may want to try to think about how we can how we can get that if we get you or Rob is in contact with your brother. So it sounds like yeah, yeah. I can do it. I mean, I can read something now. it might be nice also to have somebody's, someone else's voice. Do you have something with you? I have, I have something to read with me, but it would be really kind of cool to hear Tommy or Eugene. Okay. and Since so I mentioned them, but well, I can do both. Well, Rob is talking, I guess he's in contact with your brother about precisely that idea. So um, let's hold on to that and see. Do you think so, Mitch? Yeah. Okay. Um, this is great. I'm thrilled with your work. I loved your novel. And, oh, thank you so uh, much. It's a wonderful conversation. And thank I'm, you so much for I'm having really me. I'm really excited about putting this on the air. So. Super. Yeah. So have a good rest of your time in Rochester. And, oh, I'll be uh, back soon. Okay. Well, maybe I'll meet you someday so, in Minnesota. Uh, I hope so. Yeah, that would be great. Right, take so care. Much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.